You're listening to the Alternative Investor Mastermind, where we do a deep dive on alternative investment opportunities and the lifestyle it can create. Join Jack Krupe as he presents actionable tips and tricks in doing passive real estate away from mainstream strategies. Go beyond the usual fix and flips and try less explored yet rewarding investing ventures from multifamily properties, mobile homes to Bitcoin mining. Do not miss this opportunity to escape traditional assets and finally create wealth without Wall Street. Now your host, Jack. You're listening to Alternative Investor Mastermind, where we do a deep dive on alternative investment opportunities and the lifestyle it can create. Join Jack Krupe as he presents actionable tips and tricks in doing passive real estate away from mainstream strategies. Go beyond the usual fix and flips and try less explored yet rewarding investing ventures from multifamily properties, mobile homes to cryptocurrencies. Do not miss this opportunity to escape traditional assets and finally create wealth without Wall Street. Now your host, Jack. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Alternative Investor Mastermind. Today, I want to talk about economic cycles. Just heard a lot of comments recently about people that got burned in 2000, burned in 2008, and are just very scared at the moment. And they're just basically going to sit out. A lot of people think there's going to be another 2008-type housing crisis. And also just a lot of concerns about, about interest rates being being too high. So I'm going to talk about that and just some updates on what we're working on here at JCAM Investments. So for those who don't know, I got started in 2001 in real estate, graduated college during the dot-com crash, basically got thrown right into the first economic crisis of the dot-com crash. Luckily, I didn't really have a lot of money at the time, so I didn't get hurt too much in the stock market, but the job market was uh, was not great. I was fortunate to have a job, but uh, pretty quickly realized how quickly the music can stop and, and go from a situation where I was potentially going to be floating all over the world for uh, different job opportunities to you know having a job at a local tea consulting company in Rochester, New York. So a couple notes there. First is there's no guarantee that the market bounces back that quickly. If you think back to the 2000, 2001.com crash. It took really the better part of the 2000s for the NASDAQ to recover. And then 2008 dropped it down again. So there was a 10 or 15 year period where there really wasn't much growth in the stock market. And uh, learning those lessons early for me was great because it caused me to really focus on cash flow first with cash flowing rental properties. And then post 2008, non performing mortgages. However, many of them became performing mortgages or reperforming mortgages. So there was still a good amount of cash flow with that strategy. So as far as whether or not we're going to have another 2008 crash, I really do not think so for a number of reasons. And I'm going to start with a quote that I've used liberally. It's from Howard Marks, the founder of Oak Tree Capital. And they were very early into the non-performing loan base. They raised money in 2007, 2008, one of the early large institutional buyers of large non-performing loan pools. And his book about market cycles, he says, history may not repeat itself, but it does rhyme. I think that is the way I look at the next few years. Residential housing is nowhere near in the same position it was in 2008. The first reason is we have a very robust secondary market for buying loans that really didn't exist before 2008. There was a few buyers here and there, but the volume of foreclosures, the volume of the stat really, so there was nobody on Wall Street equipped. For this day and age, there's probably 10 different firms that all could uh, write multi-hundred million dollar checks to buy portfolios of loans. There's also much more clear government guidelines. Back in 2008, there were people that really should have been able to avoid foreclosure that first year, but there just wasn't really a clear setup and clear direction on modifications. 
So nowadays, those people that do get into trouble, and we saw that with COVID, we'll probably see it again and any future recession. The government's going to provide incentives and really guide the mortgage companies to do whatever possible to give options for modification, forbearance, et cetera. And the government has the power to do that because a great majority of loans here in the US are actually backed by the government and owned by Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, or HUD. Even if your loan is serviced by another company, more than likely behind the scenes, it's actually owned owned by the government. That's, I think, about 70% of loans are somewhat backed by the government. So with that said, there's also market for buying performing loans. So those loans, once they're modified, there's a number of funds and insurance companies that will buy the performing loans. Now that market is shifting a bit now with interest rates rising, the level of return they're looking for is a bit higher. But one of the most interesting things I learned in my time working in private equity and working on Wall Street is that there's a buyer for every type of loan. Insurance companies, for example, they actually prefer loans with lower interest rates because they can match it to some of their insurance products or some of their annuities. So they want loans with a low interest rate that are not going to pay off early. And uh, over the prior five or 10 years with rates being so low, loans that were maybe written five years ago that had a five or 6% coupon, those were the most likely to refinance and pay off early. Whereas loans that had a 3% or 2%, even some of these 2% modifications that were done at the height of the crisis, the insurance companies didn't mind those loans because they knew they were likely to stay for five, 10, 15 years without paying off. All of this essentially leads to a lack of supply, in my opinion. And that's the number one reason why we won't have the type of type of crash in the residential market that we did in 2008. So 40% of homeowners have no mortgage. 30% are locked at or below 4%. And this is drastically different than 2008, whereas most borrowers back then had some type of option arm where they had maybe a 6 or a 7% rate for the first year or two, then that rate was going to reset to 8 or 9%. So that was the ticking time bomb. In this market, we've got a majority of borrowers of locked in long-term low interest debt. To those who think that interest rates are too high and have my moments as well, but I also speak to a lot of industry veterans who've been through multiple market cycles. And the fact is rates being between six and 8% was normal for the better part of 20 or 30 years that a lot of my mentors have been in real estate that long. So if anything, it's not the new normal, it's the old normal. The fact is interest rates being high, especially for the types of investments that we're currently mostly involved in, which is larger multifamily apartment complexes, mobile home self-storage. There are really some benefits to us that are invested in these markets with higher interest rates. The first thing is that it does price out a lot of tenants. A year ago, a mortgage payment might've been for a typical house, typical borrower may be spending $500 or $1,000 more than they were a year ago to buy a house. So many of the tenants in this workforce housing are really just getting started or we're not going to buy a three, four, five dollars $500,000 house anyway. But for those that were on the fringes or that were close to buying, this interest rate has really priced them out from buying potentially a number of years. So the percentage of people that are renting is likely to increase over the next few years. And in many markets, there's already a housing shortage especially in the workforce housing, affordable housing. When we're looking at a 200-unit apartment building in the Southeast, you cannot build them for the price that we're buying them. It's just impossible. You factor in interest rates, you factor in the supply chain, you factor in cost of materials. It's nearly impossible to build a new 
housing complex, new apartment complex that appeals to workforce housing. The only way they generally get done is through massive tax incentives. And even now, it's really with the cost of materials and everything else, it's just it's very challenging. So banking on, it goes back to supply and demand again. There's still a shortage of supply of workforce housing. And with inflation and interest rates pricing out many of the tenants from buying, it actually gives the apartment building owners some type of pricing power to continue to uh, raise rents along with inflation. So when we model, we want to model very conservatively, not modeling in 5 to 10% rent growth just organically. What we do model in is looking at what the current rents are, what the rents are on comparable properties for both the existing units that we'll call classic, which are not renovated and are older, versus renovated units that have the new kitchens, new bathrooms, new flooring that often generate a premium of three to $500 a month. So we do model in what I'll call forced appreciation where we're renovating units and or we're acquiring a building that had a long-term owner that wasn't as aggressive with, uh, with raising rents. But we're not modeling in just a wholesale increase in rents, although that is a potential case that could very well happen with inflation. I want to talk a little bit about the mortgage company side of the business. So back in 2007, I was still in Rochester, New York, stayed up in Rochester a few years after college, was active. I had a real estate license. We were flipping houses. I owned a bunch of one and two family properties. And we had a lot of investors coming in from California and New York to buy properties in Rochester. They were, it was a much cheaper market. And it was one of the mar- few markets at the time that had positive cash flow. You buy a two family property for 50 to $60,000 at the time. And in California, there wasn't as many two families, but the average property was five, $600,000 and it didn't rent anywhere near enough to cover the rent, cover the mortgage payment. The problem was, and what I saw of the crash at the time is people were taking out home equity lines of credit. They were basically cashing out equity from all their properties in New York, California. And they were doing that with higher rate interest rates because these were investment properties. They were borrowing at six, seven, eight percent And in many cases, those loans were those option arms that would reset in a few years, whereas two, three years later, the rate would go to 10%. And at the time, just nobody seemed to care. It was that just model of, of just buy-buy, refi, take as much money out as possible. Many of the investors were putting down 10, 15, 20% as investment properties. Others were using the Burr model and buying cash after a light renovation, they were looking to refinance out their uh, profits. So as early as 2006, I started seeing some cracks in the market. I saw lenders just not funding loans, just delays, more problems. So in hindsight, I really saw the writing on the wall a little bit earlier than what was reported nationally. This time around, we're seeing a lot of headlines about lenders having uh, having problems. But this time, it's really for a different reason. Over the past three to five years, there's been an unprecedented refinance boom. Even before COVID and in the shortage of houses and the headlines of paying fifty, hundred thousand over asking, rates were already dropping towards historical lows during during the Trump administration. And when rates went to zero around COVID, it was the really the refinance boom of the century almost. So I know a number of people who own mortgage companies and they were doing everything they could to grow and to meet the volume. There was just an unprecedented demand. So mortgage companies have grown dramatically. And with rates moving so much over the last year, that refinance volume is really ground to a halt. 
So we've seen a number of groups like Sprout Mortgage ceased operations. I saw on LinkedIn a long-term bridge lender called Athos Capital. They're going to close their doors. And I think you're going to see a lot more, both the closures and or mergers in coming years, just and it's mostly because just these mortgage companies need to become right-sized again. They've maybe doubled and tripled in size to, to meet the volume of the refinance and the real estate boom. And it's not, to me, not a real estate crash, but a significant slowdown. So it's going to need to happen. And that doesn't mean that we're ease away from another crash just because you see a headline of a mortgage company going out of business or drastically downsizing. So a couple other notes on just what we're seeing in the market right now. Mortgage assumptions are back. So up until a few years ago, a majority of multifamily purchases were actually done through government-backed loans through Fannie Mae, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, or HUD. Many of those products were fixed-rate products, and some of the better deals we're in through the JCAM funds are actually five- and seven-year Fannie Mae fixed-rate loans. So a lot of the noise that's happened, a lot of the rates going up, were really unaffected in our fund, fund one, as an example, because so many of the properties we're in just have fixed rate debt. Our payment stays the same. And the downside of those products, however, is there is a substantial prepayment penalty or sometimes referred to as yield maintenance. So the reason many people shied away over the last few years from the Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac products is if you're doing a heavy value ad and you want to buy a 200 unit building, renovate hundred of the units and sell it in two or three years, can't do that without a significant prepayment penalty if you're going in with a Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac loan. So what people chose to do is go in with a bridge product that had no prepayment penalty and generally gave a slightly higher loan to value through loan to cost because you could factor in part of the renovation budget, whether it's five to $7,000 a door for the new kitchens, the new bathrooms, the flooring. So it just made it a more efficient product. The problem was those were variable rate products. Now, any deal that we were involved in had an interest rate cap, which you had to pay for, and it actually capped how much the interest rate could go up. And a number of the properties that were in in our fund have actually hit those interest rate caps already. So any future growth of interest rates is not going to impact our cash flow going forward. But that's caused most of our partners to really rethink what makes sense. And the good news is if any seller has a loan that has fixed rate, they're generally assumable. So rather than sell and pay a prepayment penalty, if the buyer assumes the loan, there's now no prepayment penalty. A year and a half ago, the assumptions generally didn't make financial sense because rates were about the same and it would just be a lower loan to value. However, in this market, if you could assume a 3.7% interest rate, it's actually very profitable for the deal. And assuming it is a win-win, the sellers avoid their prepayment penalty, the buyers get fixed rate debt for, in some cases, five to seven more years. So we're seeing that much more often on recent deals. And overall, I think it's a win-win. It's also another reason we like them is generally the loan to values are a little lower. So we're getting fixed rate debt at a reasonable, conservative loan to value. On the storage front, we've also seen some deals that have owner financing. So most self-storage deals are a lot smaller. We tend to participate. We actually have a number of funds that we follow and one fund that we are uh, co-investing with through our fund of funds where we get special deal firms just because we're a systematic investor and we're going to be investing over time. And we're writing a slightly larger check than the average individual investor. So we generally prefer funds just because we don't want to have 30 different buildings that cost $3 million each. 
However, we do have a couple partners that are acquiring direct facilities with select partners. We will invest into an individual self-storage deal. And many of those owners have tax consequences and they would prefer to owner finance for a period of time to defer their taxes and their capital gains. And with interest rates where they are, a seller can get a reasonable market rate interest rate if they're charging five or six percent. They're often very happy with that because most self-storage owners are not heavily invested in the stock market, don't trust the stock market, and are actually pretty similar to a lot of our investors in our funds that want to have cash flow passively and wealth without Wall Street. By doing owner financing, they get to continue to earn some cash flow, but they don't have to do the day-to-day operations of the storage facility, and they get to defer their taxes. So that's a win-win as well. So just a reminder, we're getting to the end of the year. There's about, as I record this, one month left to lock in bonus depreciation for 2022. And this is the last year for 100% bonus depreciation. So next year, bonus depreciation goes to 80%. So it just means that for every 100000 you invest, you'll get less of a write-off next year than this year. Add to that, that the loan-to-value are generally lower, the amount of depreciation per dollar likely to drop regardless. So to give some perspective, last year, there were a the number of deals where I got more than 100 cents on a dollar in depreciation because there was a lot of bonus depreciation and the loan-to-values were slightly higher, whereas this year, it's maybe 60 to 70% on average instead of 90 to 100 so it's a good time to lock in. As a reminder, JCAM Investments sponsors this podcast, and uh, we have two ways to invest. We have one diversified fund, and we're on our second fund at this point. Fund one launched in 2020. We just launched fund two in April. It'll be open for about a year, and it will own 15 to 20 different syndication deals or other funds where we're generally getting better deal terms. And we also have the option through a customizable fund to invest in individual deals. So right now, the fund has an option for a multifamily property in Houston that is actually next door to one that we've already invested in through our other fund vehicles. And we also have a hard money lending fund that generates monthly returns, generally nets about 10% after fees. We say 10 to 12, but it's a great. The other great part about it is there's 30 day liquidity. So you can put in as low as $50,000. And if you do want to cash out, it's a 30-day notice from whatever the end of the next month is. And you can actually get your your money out if you'd like, whether you want to just pull it out back to yourself or if you want to reinvest it into something else. That's it for today. Please follow us on all of your platforms of choice. Leave us a review on iTunes, Spotify, subscribe on YouTube. And please feel free to reach out to myself or anyone at the JCAM Investments team. And I look All forward to us in the next show. Investor Mastermind. Now that you know the many alternative opportunities out there, all up for the taking, you can finally become ultra connected and ultra wealthy. Get more valuable advice from the experts by subscribing to the show at alternativeinvestormastermind.com. Become a winner in the world of passive investing today in alternative investment strategies. Thank you for joining us. Until next time.